0: Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49, Genesis 49 and we'll be beginning in verse 29, Genesis 49:29. Then he commanded them and said to them, "I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah." to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. And in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, uh, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he has made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father with him. "...went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Father, we do come to your word now and we pray that you would show us wonderful things, that as we know your word will not return void, would you demonstrate that to us today? cause it to do its work in our lives. Lord, your word is powerful because it belongs to you. So we pray that you would speak with that power into our very hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I don't know if you're familiar with the the book and the later video series, How Should We Then Live? by Francis Schaeffer. Uh, If you are not familiar with it, I encourage you to check it out if you ever come across it. Uh, it's, as my kids would say, old. Uh, it was, it was written back in the '70s. The video series was made in the late '70s, and uh, but it's it really stands still stands up. And in God's providence, for whatever reason, that series has come across my path several times in the last week or so. Uh, Leslie recently encouraged us to, to rewatch it. It's available on Amazon Prime, by the way. So if you have Amazon Prime, it's free. You can check it out. Uh, and so we started rewatching it. And one of the things that struck me is how well it stands up. That even though the, the footage is, has that 70s kind of look, you know, it's really grainy. Uh, and, you know, he's wearing these Swiss knickers. Uh, it's, and once you get past that and the little goatee and the distraction that that is, the content, is, it it really stands. It's very, very effective. He had great insight. As I was reading in my studies this week, one of the authors mentioned the book. Uh, At Presbytery this week, Rod Whited, our moderator, gave a short devotional. He mentioned it in his devotional. So as I came to study the text, this book was kind of swimming around in my head. It's just kind of fresh. And the approach that Schaeffer takes in this uh, book is he, he, he looks at history, takes you through history. It's a walk through history, particularly looking at the Roman Empire and contrasting the fall of the Roman Empire with what is happening or was happening at that time in the U.S., what is still happening uh, in the U.S. And what he warns us about, a lot of it is still really relevant. It still, again, stands up. And the question that he is really posing is, In light of science, in light of reason, in light of creation, what we would call general revelation, and particularly from the truth revealed to us in Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, what we call special revelation, how should we then live? Well, we look at Jacob's life, and in particular, it's coming to a close. And anytime someone dies, we think not just of their death, but we think of their life. And so as we look back and and because we're we've been going through this book and i know for some of you you're thinking when is this ever going to end next sunday it's going to it's going to all be over next sunday but you know when you go through a book like this sometimes you can miss the forest for the trees and so we we've, we've looked at the the life of jacob you remember who jacob was when we got to know him right i mean you remember what jacob was like when he was younger uh, the deceptive lying conniving selfish person that he was and yet here in these final chapters of his life, we see a man who has been transformed by the grace of God. Uh, in his final years, and particularly at this moment, Jacob's faith is intact. He's sharp. He has finished the race well. He's not fearful in death. He is clear and decisive in his leadership of the family up until his final breath. Now, this isn't to say that Jacob has reached perfection. We know better. Uh, none of us do this side of heaven. Uh, Jacob still was in need of a savior, but thankfully, he was looking to his redeemer just as we are looking to our redeemer, and he finished his race with joy. One of the ways that that joy is evidenced is beginning in verse 29, the very first thing that he says to his sons, I am to be gathered to my people. Now it might be easy for us to read past that line. That's a line we've seen before in Genesis. It's been used to describe other people when they came to the end, but uh this is not just a euphemism for death. This is not just a way of saying that Jacob died. Uh, if you notice he goes on to give these instructions, very specific instructions of where he is to be buried. You know, he had made the promise, Joseph promised him that he would not bury him in Egypt, but take him back to the, the promised land, to Canaan. But here he gets very specific. And it was because that he would be gathered to his people, that where he was buried mattered. Now, that isn't to say that the burial was the description of being gathered to his people. Uh, he wasn't going to be, that, that, that wasn't what the phrase meant. For example, he wasn't being gathered to, to Rachel. He wasn't being buried with Rachel. Rachel's not buried in this cave. And that, at least in our modern time and concept, goes against our own thinking. That's where we would think he would want to be buried. isn't that? If we were writing the story, isn't that where we would place him? Next to the, 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 the love of his life? But that isn't where we find him giving those instructions. Also, we see Ishmael, was. this phrase was used of him, that he was gathered to his people. He wasn't buried in this cave. And so that's not what the meaning of gathered to my people means. Uh, it was used of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham in chapter 25 and Isaac in chapter 35. And if you remember those accounts, both of those references of being gathered to their people were preceded by the phrase, and they died. So, and they died and were gathered to their people. So this is not just a euphemism for death. It's pointing to something else. It's pointing to something beyond death. We could say that this is an embryonic phrase or an embryonic idea for that of resurrection, life after death. This phrase, gathered to my people, is only used in the Pentateuch. This is the only place we see the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It's used of Aaron and of Moses as well, so we don't just see it in Genesis. We see it in Exodus as well even though our early mothers and fathers in the faith didn't have all of the revelation that we have about the resurrection, they still had some revelation, it appears. They had some understanding that there was more to this life than the breath that we breathe, than the days that we live. And even if there wasn't this specific revelation, we know from Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has put eternity into man's heart that he's written it into our very hearts, that we long for something more because we know we were made for more than what this is. So the phrase, gathered to my people, by saying this, Jacob is not simply saying I'm about to die and, and, and be no more, that this is the end of it all, but rather that I'm about to die and I'm going to be gathered to my people, And the reason why I want to be buried in this specific location is because it points to that faith. Faith in the life after death. And so in faith, Jacob is signifying a gathering of the people of faith who by God's grace have trusted in their creator and redeemer. He is leaving his sons and his family behind. He's saying goodbye to them and he's joining those who have gone before. There is eternal life. There is life after death. The hope of heaven is real. Jacob then provides very detailed instructions. Uh, We might scratch our heads as to why these details are so necessary, but if we remember, uh, Joseph is leading the charge, and Joseph has not lived in Canaan for a long, long time. And so these instructions as to where it is are important. It's not just in the promised land. That's the, that was the thing that he made him swear back in chapter 47 when he said, don't bury me here when I die. He thought he was going to die soon. You remember that about Jacob. He always thought he was about to die. Uh, but he um, here gets very, very specific about where that cave is. And if you notice, the instructions are not just to Joseph, but he's doing this in the context of community. All the sons are there, all the brother, Joseph's brothers are there, all of Jacob's sons. And so the whole community is hearing this. And the reason this is important is this serves as a testimony to the object of Jacob's faith. You see, he could have been buried in Egypt. And you can imagine just from what we see in this text that it would have been an incredible Burial. He probably Ray and I were talking before the 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 the, the sermon or the service this morning. He probably would have had his own pyramid or or some you know been buried in a pyramid. I mean, he was treated at the level nearly of the pharaoh. When we look at how many days they mourned for him, when we look at the entourage that was sent with him uh, up to uh, up to Canaan, it's clear that the Egyptians deeply wanted to honor Jacob. Why? Because he's the father of the man who saved them from the famine, uh, we we only get a taste of how much they valued and appreciated Joseph. This is one more of those passages that shows us how much how deep their love for Joseph was, that they wanted to honor his father in this way. He could have been buried in Egypt. As we've said before, he could have been buried with Rachel. That maybe makes the most sense to us in our own context, and he wasn't. instead, he demonstrates his faith in God and that he wants to be buried in the land of promise, in the place that has been promised. It's only a small field at this point. When you think about it, the vast size of the land and all that they possess still at this point, the family has this small this small field uh, in the land where this cave is. But by being buried there with the fathers of the faith, he was saying to this whole community that the promised land would indeed be fulfilled. It would come... To fruition. I don't say this often, but I will say this in this case that I am nearly certain that Joseph and Jacob knew of the promises that God had given their grandfather Abraham. The Hebrews lived in an oral tradition, they passed things on by, you know, speaking and telling stories. And so not only did they know the promises that were given to Abraham, but if you remember when God spoke to Abraham and he made the covenant with him in Genesis 15 afterwards, he said, you guys are going to be sojourners in a land that's not your own. And eventually you're going to be slaves there for 400 years, but then I'm going to deliver you. So that story is being passed down. I believe, I'm confident that Jacob would have known this. And so it's in this context. He he doesn't know if this is happening right now. He knows they're now sojourning. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the beginning of it. Maybe Egypt is the land where we're going to become slaves. He doesn't know that for certain. But if this is the place, I want my children and my grandchildren to know where their faith needs to be placed. In other words, you're going to have to wait a long time for deliverance. Wherever, whenever this happens, 400 years, that's a long time to wait. I want you guys to be sure, and I want you, I want to be sure that this tradition is passed down as the story is told, that you know where my faith is. And we can understand why Jacob would want to do this. You know, the older we get, the closer we get to the finish line, the more important it becomes to us as we see more clearly the hope of Christ, the more important it come, becomes to us that our children and our grandchildren make their faith their own. This is, what, this is what Jacob wanted. He wanted them to get it. He wanted them to make their faith their own. And so he's saying this. This whole thing becomes a testimony before the community of the people of Israel. And so he tells them specifically where the cave is. He mentions all who have been buried there. And then after that, verse 33 tells us, he drew up his feet into the bed and he breathed his last And he was gathered to his people. And so the imagery that's pictured here is that Jacob was sitting on the side of his bed. He was speaking to his sons and uh, his daughter-in-laws and grandchildren and everyone who was there to hear. And then when he was done, he laid down and he died. He breathed his last. He had spoken his peace. And notice here the narrator points out again that he was gathered to his people, pointing to something beyond just simply death. Jacob's faith was now made sight. What he had only known in part was now something that he knew in full as he entered into eternity. And as he died, as we might expect, Joseph grieved. In chapter 50, verse 1, we see that he fell on his father's face and he wept and he kissed him. If you remember the promise that God gave to Jacob uh, when he was going to be reunited with Joseph. You know, for decades, over two decades, Jacob thought Joseph was dead. And then when he gets the word that Joseph is still alive and they're about to be re- reunited, God visits Jacob and he tells him a number of things. One of the things he says is that Joseph will close your eyes. He will close your eyes in death. I mean, what a thing this to have presumed for so long that the son of mine is dead... And now not only am I going to get to see him, but he is going to remain with me until death. And guess what? Surprise, surprise, God keeps his promise. Here is Joseph in the moment of death, in a sense, closing his eyes. Certainly, all the sons grieved their father's passing. The narrator's not sliding the other son's grief. But he's focusing our attention on the grief that Joseph showed because he wants us to see God keeps all of his promises. And here is yet another one. The other thing that we see in Joseph's grief is that it is real grief. There's no, uh, this isn't an act. Joseph truly was full of sorrow. His dad had lived a long and full life. And it wasn't, it wasn't as if this caught him by surprise. They knew that the end was coming. And yet the grief is real. And I, I'm thankful that in God's word, he doesn't, um, He doesn't soften these things, but he lets us see the realness of emotion, of pain, of grief, to know that being a believer doesn't mean that you stuff it. It doesn't mean that you fake it. It doesn't mean that you're emotionless. But being a believer and trusting God still includes experiencing real emotions like loss and sorrow and grief. And so we see that here in the life of Joseph. After this first period of grief, though, he jumps into action and he has the physicians begin the embalming process for his father. Now, normally the priest would have done this. Joseph has his doctors do it. And the reasoning for this is it's not a spiritual act. It's a, it's a practical uh, reason for, for embalming uh, Jacob. You know, the Egyptians practice embalming. We know about mummies, right? We've learned about that and uh, pyramids and, and all that goes with it. But they did this for spiritual reasons. They, too, believed in a life beyond this world, right? Eternity was in their hearts, too. But their focus was on the wrong thing, wasn't it? Preserving the body instead of the soul. And so that's their reasoning for this embalming process. But Jacob's body needs to be preserved for a different reason, and that is he was about to make a journey up through the Sinai Peninsula to the land of Canaan. And we don't have to use much of our imagination to understand why this is important. It's not only long, but it's hot, and a body would not have fared well had it not been preserved in some uh, respect. Verse 3 tells us that the process took 40 days and that the Egyptians wept for Jacob for 70 days. Now, we know from other historical documents that this is the, same, this is the right amount of time. It's, it's consistent with uh, the, how the Egyptians practiced this embalming pro- process. Uh, they did get better as time went on. This was in the earlier days of it. They improved more and more. I read more than I cared to about embalming this past week. I'm a bit squeamish about these things, so I'm not going to do to you what I would not want done to myself and talk about any of those details. But if you care, that's what Google is for. You can go read up on what that looks like. Let me just say that what they did was they used salts, chemicals, things that they had come up with, as well as spices and resins to preserve the body. It's interesting that the Hebrews, who did not practice embalming, uh, they, their word that they came up with for the, the Hebrew word for embalming, it means to make something spicy. So there you go. That's what was going on. Now the only two people in Scripture who are recorded as having been embalmed are Jacob and then later Joseph. Uh, Joseph was embalmed as well, and so we we see this as unique in both in both cases for practical reasons. The mourning period that's mentioned is is seventy days. The only recorded period that was longer than that was seventy two days, and that was for the king. That was for the Pharaoh, and so you see how. Again, how much they wanted to honor uh, Joseph's father by mourning for him this long. They desired to honor the father of the man who had saved them from the famine. They were deeply, deeply grateful. Well, after the time of mourning had ended, then Joseph sent word to Pharaoh in verse 4 that he needed to take his father's body to Canaan. And you get the sense that in asking for permission and the way all of this happened, that Joseph wasn't anticipating what Pharaoh came up with. Uh, One, he knew he had to ask for permission. Uh, Why he didn't go to Pharaoh directly, we're not told. He certainly had that, that privilege to go directly to Pharaoh. Most think that it was because of the mourning period that he was in. He would not have practiced shaving and so forth, and this would have been an affront to the Pharaoh. And so for that reason, because he was practicing Hebrew mourning, and that would have uh, been uh, a problem for the Pharaoh, that that's why he sent word. But for whatever reason, he sends word to the Pharaoh to gain this permission and you notice in verse 5, there's two things that are mentioned that are interesting. One is he, he says that his dad had hewed out the cave himself. And we don't know exactly what that's pointing to. That, that word that's used here is used in, uh, in other passages in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy and Hosea, as purchased. So I think that's a strong argument that that's what's being said here, that the family had purchased this for burial, and it was simply something um, uh, that simple. But maybe Jacob did some digging at some point when he was in the land. Maybe he had gone into the cave and made his own or had his servants, you know, hewed out his own special place. But for whatever reason, there was a designated place that Jacob had in mind. And that was part of the argument that was presented to Pharaoh. But notice the other thing that is shared with Pharaoh is Joseph promises to return to Egypt. And this isn't elaborated on, but this has to have been some kind of issue that pharaoh was afraid of losing joseph he didn't want to lose him joseph meant a lot to pharaoh to his government and to his leadership and so joseph is saying this isn't a trick to leave i'm going to come back uh, i'm not going to stand in the la- stay in the land of canaan well unsurprisingly pharaoh grants him his request but maybe surprisingly is the way pharaoh does it He allows not only for Joseph and his brothers to go bury their father, but he sends along with him this incredible entourage. It says Pharaoh's servants, not Joseph's servants, Pharaoh's servants. He gave up his servants, the elders of his house, the elders of Egypt. This is the narrator's way of saying all the bigwigs went. This is the dignitaries, the senior officials. This was a funeral march sanctioned by the royal court of Egypt. This was a sight to see. Uh, it would have been um, something that would have caught everyone's attention, this caravan of the elites and the wealthy and the powerful and the famous traveling with a military escort. We see the chariots and the horsemen that go along with them. Quite a sight to see. The family, of course, went as well. Verse 8 says that everyone except the children, the flocks and the herds went with the funeral procession. So the whole family. So you have all these dignitaries and you've got the whole family. We know that the children and the herds would have remained behind for practical reasons. It was a difficult journey. No need for the animals to go either. But it also served as another indicator to Pharaoh that Joseph would return. He's, he's not going to leave the children. He's not going to leave the, 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 the herds and the animals there. But everyone else is going. In a sense, the whole nation of Israel, small as it was at this point, makes this trek toward the promised land. And what we're told in verse 10 is that they went beyond the Jordan to Attad. Um This is interesting because this is the same path that the nation would take 400 years later. Now, we know that the nation took this 400 years later. This, this, it wasn't the shortest path. They did not, you know, A to B, shortest distance. They didn't do that. Why? Well, there were geopolitical reasons, uh, people that, that would, would have resisted their passing through, and so they went around uh, to the east and they came in from the eastern side across the Jordan back in. And so it's interesting to see that here in this much smaller, again, in embryonic form, the nation of Israel takes the same path. In a sense, it's a foreshadowing of the journey that would happen hundreds of years later when God did deliver them from slavery out of the house and bondage of Egypt. This time, they were only going to see a smidgen of the promised land They only had, they only possessed a very small piece of it, that little field in Machpelah. But the day would come when God would deliver them out of the bondage of Egypt, and he would indeed give them all of the land for theirs. I mentioned the military escort. Verse 9 talks about that, both chariots and horsemen. It says it was a very great company. And so as if the dignitaries weren't enough pomp and circumstance, now we have chariots and cavalry going with them. And this was such a conspicuous entourage that everybody noticed. And so as they came into the land of Canaan, the people of Canaan noticed. Verse 11 says, When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. And it says there that they grieved for seven days. This was the Hebrew custom. So they had grieved according to the Egyptian custom for 70 days in the land of Egypt. Now they were in Israel or in what would one day be Israel, the promised land, Canaan, and they grieved according to that. It says it was a very great and grievous lamentation, verse 10. This wasn't an act. This wasn't a ceremony. This was deep grief. And again, the narrator points out that this is beyond the Jordan. Once again, signifying to the readers of this, hundreds of years later when Moses would write the Pentateuch, that after they had been delivered from Egypt, they would go back and they would read this account and they would know that their forefather Jacob's funeral had led the same journey that they had been delivered on when God had taken them out. So he's giving them this picture, this snapshot, that I'm the sovereign one. I oversee all the details. I care for all the needs. Even when you don't know I'm at work, like this little funeral march that seems like nothing, uh, I'm showing you things, I'm doing things, I'm at work. I'm sovereign. I'm faithful. I keep all my promises. Well, the place here that's named Abel Mitzrayim. This is uh, uh, just a, a word that means meadow or field. It, it uh, also, it's a there's a word play, bit of a word play going on. The word means mourning as well, and so this became kind of a testimony to the Canaanites. The field of the Egyptians mourning, or the the, the field of the Egyptians sorrow. This entire journey had been an act of obedience and faith by the sons of Jacob. And it served as a testimony not only to their community, but also to everyone who observed. The Egyptians were observing this, and of course the Canaanites were observing this as they marched into that land. And it's interesting that both of those groups, the Egyptians and the Canaanites, would one day be defeated and overcome by the God of Israel in both the Exodus and the conquest of the Promised Land. Well, following all of this, Joseph then does as he promised to Pharaoh. He returns, he brings his family back, and they come back to Egypt. Well, I mentioned that the Egyptians had an awareness of the afterlife. Uh, we know this, again, from the mummification process of embalming that we may have learned about in some grade school history lesson or uh, seeing some movie like Indiana Jones. Uh, but as we said, their ideas did them very little good. Because archaeologists still find those remains to this day. Preserved, yes, but does it do any good for our bodies to be preserved? You see, they focused on the wrong object. They sought to preserve their bodies instead of their souls. Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You see, eternity is something that God has set in all of our hearts. We long for immortality. We know, we know that we were made for more than this. And not only has God written that into our hearts, He has revealed in creation His very character. Romans 1 says, For what can be known about God is plain, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, and I would say parenthetically, we are without excuse. No one can respond to God and say, Not fair. Not fair. You didn't tell us, we didn't know, because He has spoken to us not only in the created world, but He has spoken to us particularly in His Son, Jesus, the Word made flesh. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we've read this so many times as we've gone through Genesis. Long ago, many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. This is how we know God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that light now shines before us in the proclaimed Word of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We will all face death. Unless the Lord returns, that's certain. Death and taxes is the joke, right? None of us get away from it. We're all going to face it. And so the question remains, what happens? Where will we go? Well, Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's a verse that affects such certainty that this is it, that there's a finality to death, There's, there's no second chance after death that this is it, then we will stand before God in the face of judgment. And so we have to ask, how can we stand? How could Jacob stand as he came to those final moments and breathed his final breath? Well, the only way that we can stand before a holy God is if our sins are forgiven. I would argue that because eternity has been written on our hearts, this is one of the reasons why we become so concerned about our sins as death comes closer. How many deathbed confessions have been professed by those who feel the weight of their own sin in the light of what lies on the other side? There's a reality to it. We look at creation. We know that this didn't just spontaneously erupt into existence. We look at meaning and worth and value in our own lives, and we know these things, if they were just conjured up in our minds, if they were just figments of our imagination, that they wouldn't mean anything. If that's all of our worth is, is something in our mind, then it is meaningless. We know that if there was nothing before, if this did just spontaneously erupt, and if there's nothing after death, that means our lives mean nothing. And we know better. We know better. We know better when we hug a loved one who has been away. We know better when someone helps us out of real trouble. We know better when we see the face of a newborn child. We know better than when our lives are spared in some kind of accident. We know that our lives matter. It's in our hearts. We're different from animals. Our lives are significant. And so we come back to this question, how can we face judgment? Well, I read to you Hebrews 9, 27, that there's this certainty that it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. Listen to verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting Him. You see, the answer is found in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He was offered up in our place. The text says once and for all with finality to bear our sins. And so we will face him either when he returns or in our own death. And for those who are trusting him, he comes to save those who eagerly await his return. But to those who have denied him, he comes to judge with a sword. And so the emphasis from all of this is if you're not trusting him today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't linger. Trust Him today. I mentioned in the beginning the, the book in the video series, Francis Schaeffer's How Should We Then Live? In the third chapter of that book, he talks about a piece of artwork from the Renaissance. It's called The Adoration of the Lamb. It's, it's one of my favorites, and it's only one of my favorites. I'm not some kind of art person. Uh, but I came to appreciate this because of this uh, study, uh, going through it as a young person. Uh, this Adoration of the Lamb, it's also called the Ghent Altarpiece. It's viewable today still in Ghent, Belgium. It was painted by Jan van Eyck in 1432. Uh, it's pretty old. This is what Schaefer writes about it. He says, It's an altarpiece containing wonderful pictures of Eve, Adam, and singing angels. But most impressive is the central theme. The rich, the poor, people of all classes and backgrounds coming to Christ... And who is this Christ? Van Eyck comprehended the biblical understanding of Christ as the Lamb of God who died on the cross to take away the moral guilt of those who accept Him as Savior. But this Christ is not now dead. He stands upright and alive on the altar, symbolizing that He died as the substitute, sacrificed, but He now lives. As Van Eyck painted this, almost certainly he had Jesus' own words in mind as Christ speaks in Revelation, I am the living one that became dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. For all who have put their faith in Christ, be confident that you will be gathered together with your people in the presence of Christ with all those who have gone before you in faith. And like Jacob, with this confidence, we can live well and we can die well without fear, without anxiety, because we trust in the one who is faithful, that he will lead us to safety on Canaan's side when we cross over to the reality of the promised land, our heavenly reward. Let's pray. Father, would you, Lord, use your word to speak to our hearts deep truths of the hope that is ours in the resurrection. We are so easily overcome by the things that happen in this life that stir up fear and anxiety of hurt and pain that we cannot even imagine the relief that we will know when we see You face to face. Lord, we long for that day when all is made right. And we long for the relief from the, the effects of sin, our own sin, the sin of others, the sin of, of the, the fallen world that we live in. Lord, we long for that day. But until that day comes, Lord, make us make every moment count. Help us, Lord, to see that our lives matter, the way we live matters. Help us to finish the race, to run the race well, to finish the race with joy that we might keep our eyes fixed upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now sits at the right hand of God Almighty. Lord, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us run well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.